Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you will help us to understand who Jesus is and more importantly, why we need to hold on to him. We pray that as we go through this passage, even though it seems far and remote from us, but yet we will see the full force of what you say to us about Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, I think that uh, one of the most insulting things that uh, people can say to you, especially if you're a child or kid, is that you're a loser. Okay, I'm not sure. Probably no one says that to you very regularly, like you're a loser or something. But I remember once uh, I saw uh, on a music video someone doing like, something like that, right? And I asked, I said, what are they doing? And my son said, oh, that means loser. I said, which way is a Loser. And uh, I said, okay, that's quite must be quite a bit of a put down. Okay, very dismissive thing to say to someone that you're a loser. Because I think everybody wants to be a winner. Nobody wants to be a loser. But I think that as we come to this point in God's uh, word, uh, if we're really honest with ourselves, we are all losers in one way. Uh, and I think that uh, we all lose this when we come to our battle against our temptations, against our own uh, sinfulness. We are all losers in that respect. And we all struggle against that temptation and against sin. And if all of us are losers, then today's passage is really, really relevant to us. Now we begin today's very long passage, and I, I must ask you to really concentrate, because there are a lot of things that uh, this passage brings out, and I've tried to make it as uh, interesting as possible, but it's still very deep. So you need to really concentrate, and you need a Bible in front of you. It begins in verse 21 by saying, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, if you remember what happened last week, John the Baptist had been baptizing people. That's why he's called John the Baptist. And uh, his baptism was the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Which makes it really strange why Jesus would need to be baptized. Because, what was Jesus being baptized into? Did, did Jesus need to repent of anything? Was Jesus sinful? Well, from what we understand in other parts of the Bible, and as we go along in the book of Luke, Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus was not sinful. Jesus did not need to repent. He did not need forgiveness. So why did Jesus get baptized? Uh, obviously, Luke doesn't tell us. But I think that uh, as we read this, this chapter, he was being baptized because he was identifying with humans. He was identifying with sinners. He was showing his solidarity with the other people who were being baptized, those other people that needed to repent and those people that needed that forgiveness. Now, if you look up here in this passage, in Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to refer to this at some later point. Um, now, I'm sure uh, the writer of the book, Hebrews, didn't really have this in mind, but the principle, the theological principle is exactly the same. Right? Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too, Jesus, the he here is Jesus, shared their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I think Jesus didn't need to be baptized because he wasn't sinful. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need forgiveness. But he was baptized 
because he wanted to show his solidarity, his unity with other sinners, the other people, the thousands of people that day who were being baptized. But when he was being baptized, what happened? Okay, and he was baptized. And in verse 21, it goes on, he says, And he, as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So you imagine that day uh, at the Jordan River, John the Baptist was baptizing people, and there were large crowds of people coming together with Jesus. Now, the role of John the Baptist was, as we saw last week, to prepare the way for the Christ. He said in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that a mightier one than him would come after him, one whom he was not worthy to untie the sandals of his thongs, or his slippers, right? Remember that? Now, the question is, how would we recognize this mightier one to come? How would we recognize the Christ that was coming? Well, We don't know, isn't it? John never tells us. He doesn't say that, well, look for the guy with the big halo on his head, right? Or look to the guy with the big C on his shirt. No, it doesn't say that. Now, as we've been going through uh, chapter 1 to 3, you'll notice that all the prophecies and predictions of Jesus are all happening in a very private or semi-private setting. So, if you remember, it's only been a few weeks, and when you do your Bible study, I'm sure you remember, the angel spoke to the father of John the Baptist. Okay, that was a private setting. The angel spoke to the mother of Jesus. Again, that was private. Uh, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, spoke. Again, that was a very semi-private setting. Uh, Simeon and Anna, they testified about the baby Jesus. Uh, But these were all sort of like not very public things, right? But here, after Jesus is baptized, there's a very public, clear and unambiguous endorsement of Jesus as God's son. The heaven is, so you can see things, right? The heaven is open and the Holy Spirit descended on him like bodily form, like a dove. Now, um, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit looks like a dove. So every time you see a dove somewhere, that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think that God does this for the benefit of the people so that they can see the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus. It's like maybe some people say the Holy Spirit came on Jesus like he was hovering like a dove or fluttering like a dove or came down slowly on Jesus like a dove. Okay, so that it was clear to the crowd that something special was happening to Jesus. But not only could they see, but they could also hear. Because they heard a voice which said, You are my son, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Now why did God do this in such a visual way? I mean, obviously, the Holy Spirit could have come on Jesus without anybody seeing. Jesus didn't, you know, it didn't need to be broadcast to everybody. Jesus could have known what God was going to say. The only reason why God did this is so that the crowds of people would know that this was the mightier one that John the Baptist was waiting for. This was the Christ that John the Baptist was talking about. Now, last week, I watched uh, on TV... Uh, something called uh, a movie called an Inside Job. Okay, you, you can watch it. It's quite an interesting movie. It's, it's more like a documentary. It's about the global financial crisis. And uh, in the movie, they uh, they interviewed. Um, oh no, they didn't interview. They showed uh, the congressional hearings for the rating agencies. So you know, in the world today, like you know, when you buy bonds or 
companies or stocks, they do ratings, or countries even. And these are uh, companies like Moody's or Standard & Poor's, right? So they'll say, okay, you know, Singapore rating is like triple A plus or double A minus. Or if you want to buy this share in Singtel, okay, this is rated, you know, you know how many A's or B's or C's. But then the, the, the reason why they were doing this uh, interview in the congressional hearing in America was because these rating agencies had done a really bad job before the financial crisis. So Lehman Brothers, which went bankrupt, was still rated double A plus the day before it went bankrupt. So they wanted to know why did this happen? How come the rating agencies did such a bad job? So you know, you have all these nervous executives in front of all the US congressmen saying, oh, you know, actually, this is just our opinion, you know. This is just our opinion. You didn't really want, need to rely on it. It was just our opinion. And I think that this, when I was listening to that, I was thinking this is exactly what was happening here, isn't it? Because here, for the very first time, we see that it is God in heaven who endorses Jesus. It's not the opinion of the angel. It's not the opinion of Simeon. It's not the opinion of Anna. This is actually God from heaven who endorses Jesus to be his son. It is not the opinion of someone else. It is God himself who says, this is my son. Now I want you to pay attention to what God says when he says, <clears throat> you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now I wonder whether you ever thought to yourself that was a really strange thing to, for God to say. Now, God could have just said, this is my son Jesus whom I love or this is Jesus, my son. Why does he say, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased? Because obviously Jesus hasn't done anything pleasing yet. He hasn't begun his ministry. He hasn't done any uh, preaching. He hasn't done any miracles. He's just there, right? Why, why does God use these strange phrases? You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, I think one of the problems when we read the Bible is we, we often try to understand it from a Singaporean perspective in the 21st century. So, from a Singaporean perspective on the 21st century, we read the Bible, we think, okay, that's what God is telling us. This is just saying to us that God loves His Son and Jesus was His Son. But I think a very good point to make is when we read the Bible, we need to understand first and foremost, before we read it from our perspective, is how did the Jews standing there who are being baptized, understand what God said? How did the readers of Luke, when they first read Luke, understand what God had said? Because obviously, those are the people who were the audience, and they were the ones who would understand what God said. Now, those people by the River Jordan, the Jewish people, they would know the Old Testament really well. Hopefully, most of them would know the Old Testament fairly well. And when they hear those words, you are my son, whom I love with you, I'm well pleased, it would bring back to them a reminder that actually God is not just saying these words because he's, he likes those words, but because they're actually referring back to the Old Testament, which tells them about the identity of Jesus. So if you see up here on this psalm, which we read today, okay, uh, we, we read it for our responsive reading, in Psalm 2, it's a very famous psalm. Okay, this Psalm 2 is our John 3.16. You all know John 3.16, hopefully. Okay, it's a very, John 3.16 is the famous New Testament verse. Well, this is like the, New, the, the Old Testament famous uh, chapter, right? Psalm chapter 2. 
and it's known as the regal psalm or the royal psalm or the messianic psalm. It looks forward to God's Christ and King who will rule the world forever and ever and ever and everlasting eternity. And you notice in verse 7 it says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So, you may not agree with what I'm saying, but I, I think it's, you know, it's, this is what the Bible is saying. I think that when Jesus hears those words, when the people hear the words of God, you are my son, he's not just basically saying that Jesus is God's son, but he's actually taking it from, uh, from Psalm chapter 2 and endorsing Jesus not just as his son, but also as the Christ. The Christ who will rule the world for eternity. The Christ who will be the everlasting king. But if that's the interesting, the next part is also very interesting, right? Because when it says, whom I have, sorry, whom I am well pleased, it also refers to this psalm. This passage is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42. Now, Isaiah chapter 42 is about a series of chapters referring to this person called the suffering servant. Okay, the suffering servant. Now, uh, Isaiah chapter 42 reads, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, or I take pleasure in, I'm pleased with. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Now, Isaiah 42 is all about a whole long range of passages, all about this person called the suffering servant. Now, this person, the suffering servant, doesn't suffer for fun. He didn't suffer because, you know, he just got delights in punishing him. But this suffering servant actually suffers for other people. So if you actually go and bother to look at Isaiah chapter 42 onwards, the climax comes in Isaiah chapter 53. Okay, it's all about the suffering servant. So in Isaiah 53, this is what it says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, it's really a contradictory uh, titles that Jesus has given here, right? Because on one hand, he is the Christ, the all-conquering ruler, but on the other hand, he is the suffering servant. He is the suffering servant who dies for others. He's a suffering servant who all the iniquities and sins of the world are loaded on. So in this just one sentence, God actually brings those two uh, 
identities together, the Christ and the suffering servant. The one who will be ruler, but also the one who will be rejected. And if you actually understand those two titles, that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal ruler, as well as the suffering servant, then you sort of can predict the whole outcome of Jesus' life and the cause of the good news in the book of Luke. Now, so basically, uh, I spent half the sermon just basically telling you Jesus is the Christ and the suffering servant. Now, Luke then, very interestingly, goes on to tell us about the genealogy of Jesus. Um, so from verse 23, he goes on to say, you know, he was the son of son of son of son of son of all those sons, right? Now, why does Luke bother to do that? Why doesn't he just go from Jesus' baptism straight to chapter 4, where Jesus goes out into the desert to be tempted? Why does he bother to tell us about the, the genealogy of Jesus? Now, I think that we live in an age where we're not particularly interested in who our great-great-great-great-grandfathers fathers are, right? I mean, anybody here really interested in your genealogy? Anybody know who your ancestors are beyond your great-grandfather? Not really, right? I mean, I know I had a friend of mine in Australia. He was really interested in his genealogy. You know, he could tell me which boat his ancestors were convicts of coming off the boat in Australia, right? But for me, it's like, okay, that's good for you, but what's it do for me, right? So why do we need to know the genealogy of Jesus? Well, I think there's a few reasons. Jesus has just been named the Son of God. But he's not just the Son of God, but he's also fully human, right? He's not just divine, but he's also fully human. 100% God, 100% man. Now, a true story is told of uh, these missionaries who went to Papua New Guinea, and they were trying to convert the tribes in Papua New Guinea. And they were translating the Bible, and they thought, okay, we'll translate the book of Luke, but we'll leave out chapter 3, you know, because why would they be interested in the genealogy? So anyway, they translate, and then they they couldn't seem to be getting any headway. The tribes people didn't want to accept Jesus. And they thought, okay, well, we've come to, we've translated every part of the, the book of Luke. Why don't we translate the genealogy now? So they're translating it, and then they translated it, and then gave it to the people to read. And as the tribal people were reading it, they got really excited. And they said, why? They said, wow, you mean Jesus actually comes from all these people? And then the missionary said, yes. He said, well, now we know that Jesus is a real person. Because all along we just thought there was a white man's story, but now we see that Jesus is real. So in that sense, when you look at this list of people, it may not mean very much to us, and half those people never appear again in the rest of the Bible. You can do a word search. Right? I mean, who, who is math? I mean, we don't know who math is, right? But the thing is, Jesus is a real human person, but at the same time, he is God's son. But some of the names uh, in this genealogy list are important. Okay, so if you look at this list, uh, for you who have your Bibles, if you have your own Bibles, you can circle it or underline it. If it's a church Bible, please leave, leave it alone. Um, but you'll notice that there are some names here which are very important because if you see here in verse 31, Jesus is the son of David. Now God had given David, King David, the promise that out of his line, out of his seed, there will be one person who will be the Christ, the eternal king. So because Jesus is the son of David, he can fulfill that prophecy or that promise of God. In verse 34, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Now God had promised Abraham that out of his seed 
he would bless the world, the whole world would be blessed through one of the, the, the children of Abraham. So again, God blesses the world through Jesus. You see here, Jesus is also the son of, uh, where is it, son of, there's so many names now, uh, Jacob in verse 34. And Jacob was the forefather of Israel. So therefore Jesus represents Israel, the people of Israel. But at the same time, Jesus is the son of Adam, which is the father of humanity. So Jesus is qualified to represent the whole of humanity as well. So what we see here is Jesus is not just fully human, he's a special, unique human that in his bloodline, he represents all the promises of God that he is united with the people of Israel, but also united with the people of the world. It's as if God was controlling history and in this person, Jesus, you find this unique person who can fulfill all his promises and also represent all of God's people, both Israel and the world. Now, uh, this part is a bit of a, 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 a detour or a digression, so you might not want to um, listen to this, but it's interesting, okay? Now, if you notice uh, in this genealogy, uh, it's, a, it's a long genealogy, but there's another genealogy in the Bible. Alright, so if you turn me to Matthew chapter 1, okay, you need a, that's why you need your Bibles, right? Because I, I couldn't print Matthew chapter 1 up here, it's too long. Okay, but if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, you notice there's another genealogy. Okay? Now, the, reason, the only reason why I'm telling you this is because maybe some, time, some point in your Christian life, somebody will say, Hey, do you notice that the genealogy in the book of Matthew chapter 1 is different from the genealogy in Luke chapter 3? And you'll say, Oh, you know, therefore, I, you can't believe the Bible, right? Because the people don't know what they're talking about. They're like always getting all their facts mixed up. So, if you compare the two genealogies, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, you see that uh, actually Luke starts from Abraham, and Adam starts, uh, sorry, Luke starts from Adam, okay, that doesn't matter. But from Abraham to David, it's exactly the same. Okay, you can compare the two. From Abraham to David, exactly the same people, same genealogy, same bloodlines. But from David to Jesus, all the names are different. Every name is different. Now, what's happening here? Did uh, Matthew make a mistake? Or maybe Luke made a mistake. I mean, you can understand they got one person wrong. Can you imagine? Everybody from David to Jesus is different. There must be something really majorly wrong here, right? Someone made a mistake somewhere, right? That's what people will say. But I think that uh, there's ways to understand why, why the genealogy is different from Matthew to Luke. There are two, I guess, the most acceptable or the most logical explanations is uh, the first reason is because Matthew was looking at the legal sonship of Joseph. Right, so Jesus was the legal son of Joseph and he went all the way back from Joseph to David. Okay, so you understand what I'm saying? Matthew went from Joseph all the way back to David. But Luke uh, is actually not telling us the legal sonship, but he's looking at the bloodline of Mary. Okay, so Luke is saying the bloodline of Mary because if you look at this passage in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, he says a very strange thing, isn't he? In verse uh, 23, he says, he was the son, and then he puts this really funny thing uh, uh, aside there, he says, so it was thought. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Now why would he say, um, 
Jesus was the son, so was Saul of Joseph. I mean, that's a really weird thing to say, right? I mean, it's like someone saying to me, uh, my son Joshua, Joshua, it was thought, was my son. Well, is he my son or not? I mean, is he implying that he's not my son? Right? <laughs> so, some people say, what Luke is actually saying is that, actually, Jesus was not the son of Joseph. He was the son of Mary, because Mary had a virgin birth. And actually, um, there's a Jewish record which shows that the father of Mary was Heli. So, the first person is the son of Heli. Can you see that in verse 23? The son of Heli. So, some people say that actually, in Luke, the genealogy is from Mary all the way back to David. Whereas in, in, uh, in Matthew, it's from Joseph back to David. Now, the other um, explanation that some people think is, is that uh, Matthew is tracing the royal, the royal family. So, you notice Matthew goes from King David to Solomon because Solomon is the, the king. And, then, and uh, Matthew is going from King Solomon, King David to King Solomon, all the way to Jesus. But Luke traces, if you look here, and Luke, from David onwards, uh, where do you see David? David, in verse 31, David's son, it says here, is, is Nathan. Uh, Nathan was the third son of David. And they said that actually Luke is looking at the actual physical descent. From David to Nathan, and then Nathan all the way to Jesus. Okay, so those are the two ways of looking at it. One is Joseph and Mary, or royal descent or physical descent. So those are the two explanations, and I think those are very probable or plausible explanations. It's not as if uh, Matthew and Luke are bad writers, or they don't know what they're talking about. But whatever it is, the same point is being made, right? That the Son of God is not some mythological character. He's not like a Greek god, like Zeus or somebody. But he's a real person, fully human. He's the son of David, and therefore he can be the Christ. He's the son of Abraham, and therefore he can bless the world. He's the son of Jacob, so he represents Israel. He's the son of Adam, he can represent humanity. Now then we come to chapter 4, and we see that the Holy Spirit brings Jesus from the Jordan into the desert for 40 days where he eats nothing, and he was hungry and he was tempted by Satan. Now, if Jesus is the Christ, uh, we would expect that maybe the Spirit would lead him into the temple, or the throne, or the palace. But instead, Jesus is led to the desert. And in the desert, he is tempted for 40 days. And there are three temptations. Now, if you look at the temptations, um, the most important thing we notice is that these temptations are not really applicable to us. These are Jesus' temptations. They are, they are applied to him as the Son of God. I mean, like if God, I mean, someone said jump off the top of BTPC, or someone asked you to jump off the top of BTPC, that wouldn't be very tempting for you, right? Okay? So, we must understand that this is actually saying something about Jesus. So, what is it saying about Jesus? How is it tempting for Jesus? So, the first temptation comes in verse 3 to 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. Now, what is the temptation here? Okay, I've named the temptation in the outline as, you choose, Jesus can choose to help himself, or he can obey God's will, obedience. 
Now, apparently for people on diets, it's hard enough to go 40 minutes without eating something. Is that true? I don't know. If you had a 40-hour famine, I think it's pretty hard to uh, not eat after that. You'll be very hungry. So imagine you've been hungry for 40 days. And then Satan comes and says, turn this stone to become bread. Now the temptation is not uh, power, okay? because we know that Jesus can turn, uh, do miraculous things with food. Because later on, he feeds 5,000 people with two loaves, or oh, sorry, five loaves and two fish. So the, the problem is not whether Jesus can make the stone become bread. Neither is the temptation food, right? But I think that the temptation is obedience. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert. So it was God's will that he should be in the desert and he will not eat until God tells him to eat. But Satan comes along and says, aren't you hungry? Don't you feel that as the son of God, you have a right to eat? Don't you think God is treating you in a very shabby way? Why don't you turn this stone to bread? Now, to, for, you know, for us to understand it, let me put it in today's terms. So imagine God put you in a hotel room. And uh, in the hotel room, there's food in your bar fridge, probably chips or something and chocolate. You can pick up the phone and call for room service. God says to you, don't order any food, just drink water. And God leaves you alone for 2 days, 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, 40 days. Then Satan comes along and says, aren't you hungry? Aren't you really, really hungry? Don't you think that you should just pick up the phone and order some room service and have a pizza or fried rice or I don't know what else strikes your fancy? So the question is, do you listen to what God told you to do or do you listen to what Satan says and say, okay, I'm really, really hungry and enough is enough. I'm going to order my food. Because that is the real test, right? Whether Jesus is willing to obey God and not eat and not use as a power against God's will. And that's why Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone. Now the quote here, if you look up here, the quote actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Okay? And it's very important to actually know the context of why Jesus says these words, man does not live on bread alone. Because Israel had been wandering in the desert for, it says they're 40 years, right? Can you see that 40 years? Mm, somewhere, 40 years. Okay, they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And the reason why God had kept them in the desert for 40 years was to humble you and to test you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but, but by every word that comes from the, word of mouth, from the mouth of God. So the test that Israel failed 40 years in the desert was that it did not live by every word that came from the mouth of God. It chose instead to do what it wanted to do instead of obeying God. And that's why there's a parallel here because Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. And God was seeing if Jesus would listen to his command and not choose to do his own will. And, and, and Jesus chose to obey God instead of 
making the stone become bread. So he passed the test that Israel had failed. Now the second test comes in uh, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, the devil led him, Jesus, up to a high place. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the riches and cultural achievements, all, everything in the world, right? I mean, uh, I like what commentators said. Maybe Satan didn't show him just all the kingdoms of that day, but he showed him all the kingdoms of all of history. Right, so maybe Jesus saw the Marina Bay Sands. Who knows? Maybe God said, you know, you can have the iPod, iPad six. Right, right. If, if you if you worship me. Now, what is the temptation here? Now, remember, Jesus was God's son. You are my son, and he was the Messianic King of Psalm chapter two. And the Christ of Psalm chapter two would inherit the whole world. So, what was Satan offering? that Jesus did not have. Because Jesus really had the whole world. See, what Jesus was being offered by Satan was the, I put here, the shortcut to the easy road. Right? To take the easy road rather than the hard road. Because Jesus is not just the Christ, but he was the suffering servant. In order to inherit his kingdom, he would have to suffer. He would go to the cross, he would suffer humiliation, he would suffer the agony of taking millions of people's sins on his body. But what Satan was saying was, you can take the shortcut or the easy road to inheriting the whole world if you just bow down and worship me. Now, we're not going to waste time here. Oh, not waste time. We just don't have enough time. We're not going to take time here to consider whether Satan really had the ability to give Jesus what he was offering. But what he was trying to tempt Jesus with was that, look, if you just bow down and worship me, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to be rejected. You don't have to be humiliated. You don't have to take the sins of the world on your body. You just, just bow down to me and you get everything now. Now, the Old Testament background, once again, uh, based on what Jesus replies, is that God's people, Israel, was also faced with this temptation. When they went into the promised land, God said, you know, there will be big people there, there will be bigger armies, but you have to trust me. If you trust me, it will be the hard way, but you'll get the land. But Israel failed to trust God. They wanted to take the easy road. And how, what did they do? As we read Israel's history, instead of conquering the land, they made alliances with the people in the land. Instead of following God alone, they compromised and they worshipped the other gods. you remember? But Jesus doesn't do that because Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Okay, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 6, you can see that that's what Israel failed to do. They failed to worship God alone and serve Him only. So Jesus passed that test as well. He passed the first test, obeying God. He passed the second test. He won't take a shortcut. So what's the third test? In the third test, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands 
so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, uh, just one uh, aside here. You notice the devil can quote scripture. Right? That's what it says there. The devil said something from scripture. So I think it's a very important lesson for us just as an aside that you must always uh, have your Bibles with you and check what the pastor is saying because I could be telling you the wrong things too. Right? Uh, just because someone quotes you a Bible doesn't mean that it is uh, always what God wants to say. Because like one pastor said, the devil's been to Sunday school too. Right? Okay? So you need to always check what somebody says just because they're saying this is what the Bible says doesn't mean that's what the Bible is really saying or God's will for you. Now, what is the temptation here? Because this is probably uh, uh, one quite confusing temptation, right? Well, why would Jesus want to throw himself off the, the temple? I mean, why would I want to climb on top of the church and climb, jump off? Now, first of all, we need to know that the temple was where God's presence was. So, if Jesus jumped off, then if there was any place where God would see him jump off, it would be at the temple. So, Satan was actually really asking Jesus to say, do you really think that God cares and loves you? Because you know, if God really cares and loves you, why would He make you starve in the desert for 40 days? Right? Why don't you make Him prove that He really loves you? Now, I was sort of thinking about how to understand it from our today's context. right? So, I came up with this illustration, but it might not be very good. Imagine, uh, okay, I say to you, does your wife or your husband really love you? Or does your boyfriend or your girlfriend really love you? Or maybe, do your children really love you? Okay? So how would you really know? How do you know if your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your kids really love you? Okay, let's devise this test. Okay, why don't you call them up or SMS them or WhatsApp them, whatever, and say, I've had a car accident and I'm in hospital now. And calculate how long it takes for them to come and see you. Right? Would they come and see you after work? Right? When they finish all their overtime? Or would they come and see you now? See, that's basically what what the, the devil is trying to do to Jesus, isn't it? Because he's in a time of testing. And he's, he's, he's sort of asking Jesus, does God really care for you? Let's devise this test to see if God really loves you. Will he come and take care of you? But then by doing that, that would actually show that God, that Jesus, sorry, distrusted God's love. He distrusted God's care. That he, he didn't have faith that God really loved him. And this will be really important. I don't really want to... Uh, you know, tell you what happens as we go along Luke. But that's really important, isn't it? Because as Jesus goes to the cross, he must continue to know that God still cares and loves him. And that's why he will be obedient. Now, we've seen a lot about Jesus here, that he's the Christ and the suffering servant. But it would all be for nothing if Jesus cannot overcome the devil. Because then he would just be human like everybody else. Don't you think? Jesus is not just fully God and fully human. He is sinless. Now this is really important that he is sinless. Because everybody in that genealogy has sinned. Okay, so the first qualification of Jesus is to be sinless. Now you might not think this is a very big deal. But this is a very big deal that Jesus is sinless. Because if Jesus is sinless, then he can help us overcome sin and Satan. Now, there was a doctor who became a pastor and he was an emergency room doctor in, the, in England. So he told his boss one day that he wanted to become a pastor. And his boss in England was very angry 
And uh, apparently his boss was a very mild-mannered person, but he challenged this guy and said, you know, uh, why do you need to become a pastor? Why do you need to go to help all those people in church? Are they all casualties? Right, because you know, they're all casualties in, in hospital, right? You know, these, are, these people really need you. That's what he's saying. And this pastor said, no, they're, they're worse than casualties, isn't it? Everybody in the whole world is a casualty and we're all going to die because Satan has enslaved us and is bringing us to death, judgment and hell. If you cannot see that truth, if you cannot see that reality that we are all in danger because Satan has enslaved us and he's bringing us to death and judgment, then you will not see the need of Jesus in your life. You see, I was, sometimes I ride my bicycle on the East Coast, uh, you know, the East Coast Park there. And uh, sometimes I just dump my bicycle there and sit and look at the ocean. And they have these signs uh, with the life buoy, right, about how to save people who are foolish enough to fall into the water. And there's always a sign where you throw the life buoy to people and they always tell you to stay on the ground and not jump in to help the person. And the principle is, is that if you are drowning yourself, you cannot help the other person who is drowning. Isn't that true? So if you jump in and you're drowning, the other person is drowning, you just both drown. There's no point you jumping in because you need to be on the ground to pull the person in with the life buoy. And it's the same thing, you see, with Jesus, he is not uh, a sinner like us. He is sinless. And because he is sinless, therefore he can help us. Now I know that modern men and women uh, sort of laugh at the idea uh, of Satan and the devil. Right? Some people think, ah, yeah, you know, the devil. Isn't he just Manchester United? Right? Now I remember how um, there's this very famous evangelist called Francis Schaeffer. And whenever he said that, whenever he goes to evangelize at universities, the first talk that he ever gives is always about angels. And someone said, isn't that a really weird thing to do? Because you know, you go to universities and there are all these skeptics and people want to use logic against you and the first thing you talk about is angels. What a weird thing to do, right? Why don't you talk about the proof about the Bible or the history? But why do you want to talk about angels? And he said the reason is because the Bible is about the supernatural. It is about the real supernatural. And part of uh, what the Bible is talking about here is the supernatural that there is the devil, there is Satan, there is a personification of evil which seeks to enslave and bind people. And Jesus is able to overcome this force. Now all of us are losers in this area. We are all enslaved and trapped by the devil. We cannot overcome Satan by ourselves. But Satan has overcome the devil. That is the first step in his ministry. Sorry, Jesus, sorry. Jesus has overcome the devil. He is the first, this is the first step in his ministry. He is the Christ, he is the suffering servant, but he is obedient in everything that he does. And therefore, if you take Satan or the devil or evil seriously, then you need to know that in Jesus you have one who is able to overcome him. He is the one who perfectly obeys God the Father. He is the one who is not enslaved like we are. And that's why I've showed you the first passage from the book of Hebrew, right? The, the, the first quote that I gave you from the book of Hebrew. Hebrews about how Jesus is made like us in every way, but he is not like us in this way. That he is sinless and he is able to identify with us and he is able to save us. So today we learn a lot about Jesus. I know it's a very long passage. But the identity of Jesus as the Christ, as the suffering servant, all these things will be played out. But the first thing we need to know about Jesus is he is the 
perfectly obedient, sinless Son of God who always listens to His Father and therefore is able to save us from sin. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we will understand the identity of Jesus even before He begins the very first work of His ministry, even before He opens His mouth, that He is Your Son, He is the Christ, that He is the suffering servant who will die for the sins of the world. We thank You that He has overcome Satan, that He is perfect, that He is sinless, and that that makes Him so totally qualified uh, to overcome death and judgment and sin in our lives. We pray that we may take Satan and the devil seriously, that on our own we cannot overcome him, on our own we will always be a victim to him, but as we turn to Jesus we know that we have one who will be our champion over him. There will be one who will keep us safe from him, there will be one who will break us free from his chains. And we pray that we will take it to heart, all the things that we've learned today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.